One thing I have asked of the Lord, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I will look upon the beauty of the Lord and inquire in his temple. That's what we get to do, and we get to look at the beauty of Jesus Christ today and inquire from the scriptures how it is that we live in accordance with who he is and what he does. We're going to get into it. We are in the book of John, John chapter 16, verses 4 through 11. You can go ahead and open up your scriptures to John 16, verses 4 through 11. And if you'll permit me for a little bit to have some preliminary words on the front end before we read the scripture in full, uh, I want to set this, this up well. Um, it's the word that we need to hear, not just the word of a man, but uh, let me set this up. So let's get into it. John 16, 4 through 11, and let's begin this way. Christ haunted. Christ haunted. The brilliant Southern author Flannery O'Connor, who wrote of grace in striking and strange ways, she penned these words years ago. Here's what she said. She said, I think it's safe to say that while the South is hardly Christ-centered, it is most certainly Christ-haunted. The southerner, who isn't convinced of it, is very much afraid that he may have been formed in the image and likeness of God. Ghosts can be very fierce and instructive. Christ, hardly Christ-centered, but certainly Christ-haunted. What a phrase. That'll preach all by itself, won't it? What a phrase. She could pen a sentence for sure. What does this mean? What is she getting at? Well, it means that the people of the South, down there at the bottom of the Bible Belt in the day that she lived, she knew that they knew about Jesus and were conversant with the Bible, but for most who professed, Jesus wasn't a living reality to them. He was more of a memory of a memory, more of a phantom, more of a specter, not the living Lord under which they lived their days, under which they apprenticed. He was more of an urban legend than the incarnate King Jesus. There's plenty of talk about him, but most did not experience him as a living reality. And so maybe it's been the same with you. Maybe you felt something like that, that Jesus often might seem like a, a memory of a memory, something out of history that lived way back then but isn't quite that present now, a phantom, a phantom in your life. And in relation to that, I have something of a confession uh, for you. Um, the last couple of weeks, um, I wasn't in the pulpit the last couple of weeks, and I've uh, been doing some traveling and, and some, some learning and, and some other things. Um, and so I've had a good amount of time to be thinking about um, the sermon, <laughs> to be honest and transparent. It was a hard-fought sermon to come by. Um, but I've been doing a lot of thinking and a lot of prayer regarding it. But more so, um, over the last several years, a lot of thinking and prayer about the Holy Spirit and the theology of the Holy Spirit. And that brings me to my confession. I've been a bit uh, haunted 
a bit spirit-haunted in relation to what Flannery O'Connor was speaking of. Um, and what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means I, I have some baggage. Anybody have religious baggage? Uh, anything relating to the church at all? Just Am I the only one carrying luggage here? Like, I got baggage when it comes to the Holy Spirit, and I imagine many of you do too. See, my, my parents came to faith uh, in Jesus uh, in the 70s during the Jesus uh, movement, and for, for a number of reasons, we, we bounced around from different churches throughout our years. So um, I grew up going to uh, um, some vineyard churches, went to um, some other charismatic churches, went to um, a Pentecostal church. And when I say Pentecostal, like, I don't mean Pentecostal, I mean like Pentecostal. Like <laughs> Pentecostal church, like no holds barred, no seatbelt, put on your helmet because we're going to be running around the sanctuary and you're going to fall down, hit your head on the pew, and you're going to knock a tooth out kind of Pentecostal. You know what I mean? Like, that literally happened once. It was right in front of me. This dude went down, hit the, the pew. His head went one way and the tooth went the other. It was a mess. Like, just the tip of the iceberg of some of the things that I had experienced growing up. But we also went to um, very calm and predictable Lutheran churches. And we, we also went to stately, no one running around the sanctuary Presbyterian churches, right? Uh, we also went to non-denominational churches. We went to a covert Baptist church that was covert because it took the name Baptist off the sign. So we went to a covert Baptist church for, for a number of years. And, and I tell you all this because I have memories. I have memories of teachings about the Holy Spirit. Teachings that treated the Holy Spirit like some kind of impersonal energy. Some kind of um, force that you tapped into. Some kind of spiritual red bull to supercharge your soul if you knew how to crack open that can. I remember services where the spirit was called on over and over and over again. But the name of Jesus was never on the preacher's lips. I have memories of teachings that never spoke of the Spirit in other churches, that, teach, that, that taught in a way that, that made it, it seem like the third member of the Trinity was the black sheep of the shepherd's family. It was kind of one of those things. It's like, just ignore that one over there because if you look at him, he might engage, and if he engages, it's going to get messy, and it's going to mess up all the stuff that we're doing. So it's better to ignore that member, right? It's kind of like the, little, the thing little kids do. They put their hands up in front of their eyes, and they're like, you can't see me because they can't see you, right? It's kind of like that. It's like, you can't see us. You're not there. Um, we're not going to deal with you. And not only do I have memories of teachings or lack of teachings regarding the Holy Spirit, um, I have memories of experiences that I, I can't explain. I have experiences that I can't explain, experiences that I can't shake, moments that I cannot deny that God showed up in a manifest way and did something am amazing, did Jesus-y stuff, did miraculous stuff. And so I have these conflicting teachings, I have um, unhelpful teachings in the past, I have these experiences, these memories, and then of course the scriptures, the Bible passages. And it was all a bit confusing to me. Um, am I alone on that? Any other confusion out there regarding the Holy Spirit and, and who and what? Maybe I'm alone in that, but we'll see. Uh, there's a great deal, in my opinion, of confusion in the church at large about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity. Again, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we, we, um, we're good often when we talk about the Father, although we have a lot of learning to do. And we're good often when we talk about the Son, and we have a lot of learning to do. But honestly, when we get talking about the Spirit, some of us get a bit twitchy, right? A bit 
nervous, like our eye starts to go crazy on us, if we start thinking and talking about the Spirit. So what are we to believe about the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible teach us about the Holy Spirit? You know, one of the great common tragedies that haunts the churches uh, in the West is this idea that somehow the, the Holy Spirit is just like an extra perk or extra bonus for certain people within the church. But the reality is the Holy Spirit is not extra credit for spiritual overachievers. The Holy Spirit is not spiritual or extra credit for spiritual overachievers, right? The Spirit is essential to being an apprentice of Jesus. And the reason why I say that is because there's some thought, there's some theologies that say you um, become a follower of Jesus and then if you perform and act in certain ways and do certain kinds of prayers or things, then the Holy Spirit will fill you and it's just patently unscriptural. To be a Christian is to have the Spirit of Christ in you. You're united to him because the work of Jesus' Spirit changes you, transforms you, and dwells you so you can then live and follow Jesus as you are called to so you can be conformed into his image for the glory of the Father, right? You can't be a Christian without the Spirit within you. It's better for us if we understand this. Now, our passage today is crucial to understanding the work of the Holy Spirit. It's crucial to understanding Christianity itself. And so, what we are talking about today is key to understand for there are many, I believe, that are spirit-haunted, again, in the way Flannery was speaking. That the spirit is something more of an, an urban legend, something more of a myth, rather than a living presence in which we are interacting with on a daily basis basis. And with that said, and we're going to get into the passage here in just a second, but think about this. Like, think about the radical nature of this phrase. And here's the phrase. It is better for you. It is better for you. Jesus says in this passage, it is better for you that I go away, because if I don't, then you won't receive dot, dot, dot. Now, just think about the radical nature of what he just said. It is better for you that I go away because if I don't go away, then you won't receive this. Now, what in the world could he possibly finish that sentence with? I mean, Jesus, the incarnate king of all creation, is standing before you. What is better than Jesus in the flesh standing before you, speaking with you? I mean, this is Jesus, the storm calmer, the blind eye opener, the demon banisher, the master teacher. He says, it's better that I go away. What Jesus is about to say is so important and so world-shaking and so heart-strengthening that it's what he puts forward to comfort the disciples because Jesus is about to be taken from them by violent arrest and body-breaking crucifixion. Jesus teaches them about the Holy Spirit. So here's our text. Let's get into it. John 16, verse 4 through 11. He says this. He says, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asks me, where are you going? But Because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, 
because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Lord, we thank you for your life-giving word. And Lord, I, I ask that you would fill the form of this sermon with your fire, that you would fill the words that have been prepared with light and heat. Um, have mercy on us. Would you show us the glory and the beauty of King Jesus? Amen. Well, first, uh, and this much is clear, Jesus thinks teaching on the Holy Spirit is not only important, but it's, it's radically vital, like oxygen, like water. It is vital to his apprentices. And so let's break it down. I want to make it as simple as I can here. What we're going to be looking at um, in this passage is basically in three parts, maybe four. I think I'll get to the fourth. But it's simply this, the who of the Spirit, the what of the Spirit, and the why of the Spirit. The who, the what, and the why. That helps me as I move through this. I hope it helps you. So let's do this. Let's open our mind's eye here for a moment and think about the context. This passage is on the dark night of Jesus' arrest. He's about to be arrested. At the time that he's speaking this, the very same time in the evening on the next day, he will be dead. He will be dead. The one who is the hope of these disciples, this teacher of truth, this doer of miracles, he will be dead. His body cold, his teaching tongue silenced, his hands that are working miracles, motionless in a stone tomb. And so he's told his friends that he's going away, and so they're sad. There's sorrow that's filling their hearts. And so he comforts them. He strengthens their hearts. He steals their spine with these words. In verses 5 and 6 there, he says, I get it, you're, you're sorrowful because of what I'm saying. But then in verse 7, he comforts and he steals their spine. He says this, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage. It is better for you that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. To your advantage. In other words, it will be better for you. It will be better for you. Jesus going away, strangely enough, is not bad news. It's what ushers the good news in. Jesus will send another helper, one who is like him, one who does the same Jesus-y stuff that he has been doing because it is his, his spirit. And the word that is used there, as you can see, is, is paraclete, and this simply uh, means in the original language uh, a counselor, an advisor, quite literally one who comes alongside. And think of the word like parallel, like lines alongside each other. Paraclete, one who comes alongside to be your helper, to be with you as you're going through this world. The paraclete. And this helper is a him, is a who. He's the third member of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons. This is our historic confession. This is our creed. And he says, it will be better for you because what you will receive is not merely a what, but a who. The Holy Spirit is a who, not a what. The Holy Spirit is a who, not simply a what. And I know that sounds a little bit like Dr. Seuss wrote that sentence. But like, let's... 
let's get past the Dr. Seuss nature of, of it and let it not d- diminish that truth. The Holy Spirit is a who. The Holy Spirit is not some kind of neutral force or energy that we control or manipulate or consume or box or, or uh, engage with like, like he's just running through wires like electricity, but, but one that we are in relationship with. The Spirit of the living God that we interact with who speaks to us who shows us who he is, the empowering living presence of God himself. That is who Jesus will send to us, and he will continue the work of Jesus through his people. But if I go, if I go, I will send him to you, he says. Send him to you. So here's the deal. Jesus is not simply evacuating, right? Heading off to some foreign country, country and then merely sending a, a, a postcard as a reminder like, hey, don't forget I love you. He's not sending a postcard. He's sending his own living, powerful presence, the spirit of the living God coming to dwell within our frames. Strangely, his going will allow for him to be closer to us than ever. That is just a moment on the who of the Holy Spirit. Now the what. What will this Holy Spirit do? What is Jesus talking about? What is the work of this Spirit who's going to come? And he lays this out in three parts. So look at 8 through 11. Verse 8, he says, And and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning, number one, sin, number two, righteousness, and number three, judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will not see me any longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So he, the who of the Spirit, will do the ministry of convicting. Now, as, as Joe beautifully pointed out last week, this Conviction isn't condemnation, but liberation. Liberation. It's liberation from deception. Liberation from slavery to reality. Liberation from the Egypt of illusion to the promised land of truth. Liberation from delusion to the good news of what is real. And this word to convict brings two words together and they, they strike and, and uh, bear forth a friction and a light and those two words are expose and convince. To convict in this sense is to expose and to convince, to bring light and heat, so to speak. To inform the mind and to affect the heart. To inform the mind and affect the heart. That is this ministry of conviction. To inform the mind about what is true about what is really going on, and then to align the heart, the rest of the being behind that to live in accordance with that truth. It's not just data. It's a transformative thing. It's a different way of inhabiting the reality in which you live. The Holy Spirit will expose the truth and bring us into accord with that truth by changing our hearts. And this passage says he will convict us of, one, sin, two, righteousness, Three, judgment. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, this means that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of reality. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of reality. And the Holy Spirit comes and opens our eyes, opens our minds, and opens our hearts to what is wrong with us, to to what is right with Jesus, 
and to the story that God is writing. Let me walk through those piece by piece. So concerning sin, the what is wrong with us bit, the Holy Spirit tells the truth about us. That can be a little scary when someone's telling the truth about you. He tells the truth about us so we can see ourselves, and the truth is we often don't see ourselves as well as we think we see ourselves. We often overestimate our ability of oversight or insight into who we really are. And um, I think the best way to talk about this is this. Uh, So years ago, um, on a Sunday, uh, my wife, uh, Marla, asked me, she said, why do you do that? I'm like, what? Because we're standing in here, right over here. She's, she's nervous right now. Um, why do you do that? And I'm like, do what? That? What? Squint like that. It looks like you're smelling something bad. Because the words are blurry. The words on the screen are hard to see. And being the wise woman that she is, she said, maybe it's not the words. Maybe it's your eyes. We should make an appointment for you. Amazing grace, how sweet this is. You know, just going on in a worship set. So I went to see our eye doctor, uh, Dr. Lou. And if you're listening to this from miles away, we miss you and, and we love you. But Dr. Lou ran the tests and he looked into my eyes with, with his eyes and his wisdom and discernment. And he said, turns out you're getting older and entropy is working. You need glasses, right? And that's just kind of how, how it goes. And so um, they were gracious that day. They, they got me the glasses that day, which doesn't seem like that happens all that often. And so um, I, I remember this so clearly. I sat in that front room, and, and the assistant had the glasses, and she handed me the glasses, but she said, don't put them on yet. I was like, okay. And then she leaned forward, and she said, look across the room longwise at that exit sign. You guys see that exit sign? You can look back, like that red exit sign there. It was further back than that, right above those doors. She said, look at the exit sign. And then she leaned forward and crossed her arms and smiled all weird-like. And she said, put them on. And then, and then I put them on, and it was like, boom, reality changed, right? I could see things in ways that I hadn't seen in years, and it like sucked worship out of my chest. I was like, oh my, you know, and she's like, yeah, right? Everything was like 5K. Like it was, it was so clear. I could just see there's Christmas, there's details. I looked out the window and it turns out like leaves have definition and it's not just like a green blob, right? And then she leaned forward and she was radiant and this is when she said it. She leaned forward and she said, I love that part. I love that part. This is the best part of my job. It turns out the problem wasn't that the letters were blurry. It turns out the problem wasn't with the projection out there. The problem was with my eyes. It was better for me to be convicted by my wife and be convicted by Dr. Liu that I couldn't see. It was better for me to be diagnosed so a remedy could be applied so I could live in accordance with the crispness and clarity of the world that was in front of me. It was better that way. And so, you know, I I wonder, sometimes when you look at Scripture and it feels blurry, or we look at the world and it feels blurry, it's, it's not the words. 
It's how we're seeing. It's how we're seeing, and, and we need the Spirit to help us to see. It's the Spirit who shows us our need. It's the Spirit who shows us our sin. What's wrong with us is not just some bad choices. What's wrong with us is not just a massively dysfunctional family of origin. What's wrong with us is a bent and broken nature, a heart that's darkened and rejected God that needs to be reformed and enlightened so that we can see who he is. It's better for you to see your sin. It's better for you. Now concerning righteousness, the Holy Spirit tells the truth about Jesus, that he is righteous, that he lives in right relationship horizontally and vertically with his Father and with all humanity, with all creation. He lives in right relationship. The Holy Spirit allows us to see that he is the sinless one, that he has lived perfectly, that his ministry was the ministry of God on this planet, that he walked as he ought to have walked, that he was the sinless lamb who climbed up on the rebel's cross, taking the curse that we were due, taking our death and then shedding abroad his true life, his reward, like we saying, like, we get his reward? He went into the ground, down into the tomb. He rose again on the third day, conquering sin, Satan, and death, showing, being vindicated that he is truly the Son of God, that he is alive, the death, can, death cannot hold him. And then he ascended, And that he sent his spirit to dwell in dust and, and flesh that we would partner with him as he regardens this world for its great flourishing and our good. It's the spirit that allows us to confess Jesus as that Lord. The spirit shows us Jesus. It is better for you that you can see the person and the work of Jesus. Thirdly, concerning judgment, the Holy Spirit also exposes to us and convinces us of the grand story of reality, of what's really going on, one in which God overcomes Satan, a world, a story, a narrative in which good overcomes evil, a story in which evil and brokenness and wickedness will be judged and God will right all that is wrong through his spirit working in the world, a grand story that is pointed to Jesus from Genesis on, a grand story that turns, that, that pivots from ruin to redemption at the cross, at the, at the axis or the axle of the cross of Jesus Christ, a story that ends with the snake crusher conquering the dragon, winning and ruling and reigning in this world. And when the text says concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged, who is the ruler that's judged? The evil one, the ruler of this world. The one who's at work to vandalize God's creation, to vandalize his image bearers. And look, uh, here, here's something that we need to reckon with. Too often we don't see reality as it is, and, and too often we dismiss the demonic. We dismiss the spiritual world. We dismiss the fact that we are in a spiritual battle. We think that the resistance we face is simply our grumpy neighbor. Or, or we dismiss the resistance that we face just thinking it's just the stupid person that's on the opposite side of the, opposite side of the party line. Or we dismiss uh, the, the spiritual nature of things and we just think it's merely chemicals or merely you know, indigestion when there's really other things happening in us and we are being tempted and lied to. 
See, behind the skin of history, underneath the, the ordinary, everyday-looking stuff, spiritual beings are moving, pulling strings, feeding lusts, tempting, torturing minds with anxiety, speaking lies, stoking doubts, telling false, broken narratives about who you are and who you are not. There is more to this than what we see. It's better for you that you can see the story we live in. There is a spiritual battle that we are in, one in which evil is overcome by good. So, the who of the Spirit comes to do what work? Well, the Holy Spirit opens our eyes and our hearts to what is wrong with us, right? That's the diagnosis. To what is right with Jesus, that is the cure, and shows us the story that God is writing. That is the outcome and what we are living within. See, see, Christianity simply isn't just trying to live better or more moral in this category or that category. It's literally coming alive by the Spirit invading us, changing us, that we can see what's really going on and live in accordance with that truth. It's coming alive to what is good, to what is beautiful, to what is true, and putting behind us those things that are disintegrating those things that are of the darkness, those things that are degrading us in who we are. And this can only happen through the Spirit aligning us with reality. Now, um, I want to talk about the why. So the who, the what, now a little bit on the why. Are we, are we here together? Are we good? Okay, I haven't heard you in a while, so I'm just making sure we're, we're here. Um, I want to talk about the why of the Spirit. See, if you integrate those three things that we just talked about, the sin bit, the righteousness bit and the judgment bit. Like if you integrate those three things together, what is the main goal of the Holy Spirit? What is the big why? It's Jesus. See, all this is about Jesus, right? You guys know what a floodlight is, right? Everyone know what a floodlight is? So there's kind of floodlights up there. Now I'm blind because I looked at one. And then, uh, maybe, let me do it this way. You've, you've been driving at night sometimes, I'm sure, and you've seen this like, big beautiful house or like a big beautiful building with like lush trees like perfectly manicured arbors around the house and you can see it at night because there's these little hidden lights all over the front yard hidden in bushes and stuff you don't see them but you see their effect right you see the 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 wash of light that is highlighting this glorious architecture, that is, that is highlighting this glorious artistry of how these trees are manicured. You see the flood light, but not the flood light itself, right? Spirit ministers in a way like a floodlight, putting the light on Jesus, that we would see in the darkness that we are driving through the glory of the architecture of who Jesus is, the glory of the well-manicured ministry, of the arbors of Christ's ministry, his cross and his resurrection, that we would see who he is and delight in him. See, we have a triune God. And the Spirit delights in and displays Jesus, the Son. And the Son delights in and displays the Father. Because the Father delights in and displays His Son to this world. And He does that through the Spirit. So we can see 
and engage and be attuned to who he is. And we are drawn into this thing. The Father is always delighted in the Son. The Son always delighted in the Father. The Spirit, this person of love that is there in this delight, in this display, and we're drawn into it, and it's like this upward spiral of delight and display in the glories of reality, who is God himself. That's what we're drawn into. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You're drawn into that new reality. Not just trying to follow some code or some rule. The Holy Spirit delights in, displays the Son. The Son delights in, displays our Father. And the Father delights in and displays the Son to the world. The why of the work of the Spirit all adds up to this, to show us Jesus so that we would see the beauty of our Father. The more we know the Spirit, the more we see the brilliance of Jesus. And the more we see the brilliance of Jesus, the more we see the resplendent nature of our Heavenly Father. And so a Jesus-centered church is one that should have a robust theology of the Spirit, not be afraid to talk about the Spirit. A church well aware that is empowered by the presence of the Spirit will be Jesus-obsessed and will be Father-adoring. The gospel, the good news of King Jesus and his kingdom of love comes in the power of the Spirit. Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians 1.5. He says the gospel came to them. It came to those Thessalonians, not just in words, not just in words, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. Reality entered into their hearts and they saw the glory of God. All right, we've covered the who, the what, and the why let me do this. Can I meddle a little bit more with our lives? How about the so what? How about the so what? And I want to frame the so what in this way. It's simply this question. Are we spirit haunted or spirit empowered? Are we those, as, are we those that live as though the spirit is an urban legend, so to speak? Some, some dusty theological idea or something that's only in a book? Or do we live as though the presence of God is with us, active, and in constant communion with us? Do we live as though there's nothing more real than the Spirit of God in our lives? Are we spirit-haunted, again, as Flannery O'Connor was speaking about, or are we spirit-empowered? See, I don't know, maybe this is just me, but I think there are a great many people that um, call themselves Christians that are, so to speak, um, Christian, uh, I'll say it this way since it's this weekend and this weekend is an appropriate way to talk about it this way, but Christian zombies, right? In zombification, there is movement, right? There is walking, there is some moaning. There is the doing of many ministry things. There is preaching from pulpits. There's podcasting. There's book writing. There's serving as elders. There's serving as deacons. There's Bible study leading. There's serving the poor. There is, as Shakespeare said, all the sound and all this, uh, you know, fury. There's motion. There's stuff going on. But is there spiritual life burning within? Is there a fire within? Is the Spirit of God within animating these things? Or is it, as 2 Timothy says, a form of godliness but denying that power thereof? 
You know, I, I, I wonder how much functional atheism is haunting our churches. Functional atheism, what, what does that mean? That simply means that there is confession of, of God, confession of, of Jesus, but the way in which we live our lives at the functional everyday level denies that reality and says this physical and my resources and my grit and my strength and my money, that's, that's what gets things going. Like that's, that's it. Functionally, we're living as atheists. We rely on our natural resources first and foremost. We put our trust in our money, our stuff, our strategies, our processes, our tools, our techniques, our calendars. And then if the spirit is lucky, maybe he'll get a little leftover dependence at the end when everything else will fail because it will. The reality is that we can do nothing without Jesus. He told us that. We can do nothing without the illuminating power of the Spirit revealing and moving through us. And so let us not settle for some kind of zombie Christianity, right? Some kind of religious mask over an empty shell just because we might have been haunted in the past by some baggage from some churches. And I guess I'm preaching to myself at that point. Let us realize that to be a Christian is to be supernatural. We are born again, made anew. We are a miracle. And so... I wonder, just some questions to put out. Do we walk about in spiritless Christianity? Do we come into service here on a Sunday expecting that through the singing, that through the preaching of God's word by the power of the Spirit, that we can actually hear from the God of the universe and that he can actually do something to change and to transform our hearts? Are we coming in expecting an encounter with God through his Spirit, through his word? I wonder, do we believe that the gospel itself is the power of God? It's not just some message with some information that then we do something with, but it is the power of God moving to bring people out of their graves. And I I want to lay my heart out here for a moment, and I want to be candid with a a burden that that I've been having over the the course of the last few years, and has just been sparked more and more as as of late. I want to lead this church well obvious. Uh, I want to lead this church well, and I want to teach, and I want to model a Spirit-empowered life, a life that is keeping in step with the Spirit, that Paul says. I don't want a, a dead pulpit. I don't want to preach dead sermons that are words, and, and words where the Spirit isn't moving, and I can't manufacture change. I'll never be able to manufacture change. But I want to live a life that's spirit-led, that stops in the moment and says, do you see what I'm doing with your kid right now? Stop. Engage them on this. I don't want to be so bound to a sermon that I can't stop when the spirit says, do you know what they're struggling with right now? Enter into this. Speak to this. I don't want us living these hurried lives where we don't have time to stop and listen because we're getting stuff done and going nowhere, living on a treadmill. We, as followers of Jesus, have the spirit of the living God within us. I don't want to be a spirit-haunted pastor. I want to be a spirit-empowered faster, abiding with him, obeying what he has to say. I don't want to walk in my paltry resources. I got nothing. 
Like, here you go. I got nothing. I'm not smart enough. My rhetoric isn't good enough. On our own, our resources aren't enough to get us through the grind and the sufferings and the pain of this life. But the spirit inside of you, what can't you do? What can't you get through? What can't you sing through? What prison can't you sing in? What grief can't you find joy in the midst of if the spirit of the resurrected king is inside of you? Is this the life we're living? I'm not accusing us not of being Christians. I'm saying there's more for us. As we attune our ear to who he is and how he is moving and let the spirit spotlight the beauty of Christ so we see the glory of the Father and know we are adopted, know we are loved, and know we are kids of the king. All right, my time is moving on. It is better for us that we trust Jesus in this way that he did, in fact, send his spirit. Now, quickly, what is an indicator that we are, in fact, walking in step with the spirit? I want to give you one simple one, and we won't take a lot of time on it, but a prime indicator that we are, in fact, living in the reality of the empowering presence of God within us is prayer. Prayer. Simple, but it's true. Just as a prime indicator of us living as a human being is alive is, is breathing, right? That, that is an indicator of us being alive, right? A prime indicator of somebody walking in step with the Spirit is prayer. It's being conversant with the God who is with you, speaking with him, listening, seeking, getting into his word, hearing from him, being in conversation. Because prayer is the language of dependence, Prayer is the language of dependence. This is your God, I'm not, you're, you're, you're infinite, I'm finite, I need you, teach me. Prayer is how we abide with God. It is communion with God, listening to him and speaking to him. In it we find strength to obey his word. Unceasing prayer is an index of our attunement to the spiritual reality of the life we are living in. If your prayer life is shriveled, it is an indicator of a shriveled understanding of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. If your prayer life is shriveled or flatlined, it shows a lack of understanding that we are, in fact, supernatural recreations by the Spirit of God who are in relationship with the triune God. A lack of prayer is an indicator that you are not walking by the Spirit. All right. Um, as I close, let me, let me say these last few things here. Um, the Holy Spirit is not an awkward third wheel on your date with Jesus. You know what I mean? Like, you're out with two other people, and you're like, oh, I want to be with that one, and this one's in the way causing problems. Um, that's not the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our very union and fellowship with Jesus. No Holy Spirit, no regeneration, no new heart. No Holy Spirit, no redemption, no Holy Spirit. There is no walking in the love of Jesus Christ. No Holy Spirit, then we are not being formed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit is not extra credit for, you know, the supernatural overachiever. The Holy Spirit is essential to following Jesus. Friends, it is better for us that Jesus went away. It is better for us that he would send his, his Spirit so never forget, and ever walk in the light. 
of the fact that the very same powerful life-giving Spirit of God that breathed the cosmos into being, that, that flung stars into the black velvet of night, that, that turfed this world with, with grass and trees and, and poured water into the oceans and brought life up out of the dust, that same Spirit and the same Spirit that brought Jesus up out of the dust as the resurrected King lives inside of you. He lives within us. And let me close on this. Can't you just hear it? Like, can't you just hear the Father say it? When the Spirit moves and the truth of who you are is revealed, when the Spirit moves and the truth of who Jesus is, is seen, when the Spirit moves and the grand story that God is writing is is seen in, in this glorious high definition and people are living in accordance with reality, can't you just hear the Father leaning over heaven and saying, I love that part. I love it. They're seeing the beauty and the truth of what it means to truly live. Father, you are good. Thank you for helping us see. Thank you for bringing us to life. Lord Jesus, thank you for the ministry of the Spirit that you have sent because of the precious work, the precious blood of our Savior. Lord, we come to this table today uh, with gratitude. Thank you for who you are and what you have done. And we love you. We need you. Would we taste of your present reality in this moment? Amen.